Thank you, Curbsiders Teach listeners, for joining us for this amazing first season of our podcast. We have had so much fun talking with incredible guests who have shared their wisdom to ensure that we all continue to grow as medical educators. This podcast takes a lot of behind-the-scenes efforts, and we would not have been able to bring it to you without the help of Andrew Delat, who has been amazing at creating our infographics, cover art, show notes, and running our Instagram. John Ong runs our Twitter and helped put together CME and show notes as well. Some new team members and curbsiders regulars chipped in as well, thanks to Sarah Roberts, Chris Chu, Francis Yu, Isabel Valdez, and Carolyn Chan for all their help. We are going to take a break to start working on Season 2 of Curbsiders Teach, coming out summer 2022. If you have suggestions for future topics or expert guests or any feedback about how we could make our show more helpful to you, please let us know. Lastly, we are growing our team. So if you have a passion for medical education and would like to be part of Curbsiders Teach Season 2, please email us at thecurbsidersteach at gmail.com. We're excited to bring you amazing edutainment in a few months. So follow us on social media, subscribe to the Curbsiders Teach to make sure you don't miss Season 2. The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we aren't responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to the Curbsiders Teach, our mini-series on medical education. I'm Dr. Molly Hoiblein, joined by my co-host, Dr. Ira Kershnovskaya. On tonight's episode, we'll discuss bedside teaching with Dr. Shuba Rimani. Before we get started with that, Ira, will you remind the audience what we do on this show? Sure, Molly. We are the internal medicine podcast for all things medical education. We use expert interviews to bring you teaching pearls and practice-changing knowledge to inspire the next generation of medical educators. And a reminder that most episodes are available for free CME credit through VCU Health CE for all health professionals at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. All you have to do is create an account. We have a great conversation with our guest, Dr. Ramani, tonight. We cover bedside teaching pearls both in the hospital and in the outpatient setting. Specifically, Dr. Ramani really gets us focused on including the patient in the teaching process and just kind of some very practical tips about how to move your bedside teaching forward. Dr. Shuba Ramani, MBBS, MPH, PhD, FAMEE, is an internist, educator, and educational researcher at Brigham and Women's Hospital and the Harvard Medical School. She has completed extensive training in education, including a master's and a PhD. She teaches residents in inpatient and outpatient settings, organizes faculty development programs for clinical teachers and educational scholars. She directs the, a Department of Medicine program for research, innovations, and scholarship, and the Medical Education Pathway for the Internal Medicine Residency Program. Shuba has several publications on bedside teaching, feedback, and mentoring, and is a keen lifelong learner. So without further ado, let's get to it. Dr. Romani, thank you so much for joining us. Do you mind if we call you Shuba for this recording? Absolutely. Wonderful. Well, we'd like to start with just some basic questions, just to have our listeners get to know you a little bit better. Could you give us a one-liner to describe yourself and maybe include something that you enjoy outside of medicine? Okay, I would say I'm a seasoned clinician who doesn't shy away from the bedside and engaging patients in the teaching. And uh, currently, I do more of a, you know, leading programs, an educator role, educationalist role, 
and mentoring young scholars is a big part of what I do professionally. Personally, I'd say I'm a vegetarian foodie and a world traveler, or at least wannabe world traveler. They stir my curiosity and passion, and they provide opportunities to be a learner. As Rick Steve says, keep on traveling. I say keep on learning through travel. Well, I was looking at your bio earlier, and I was so impressed by how many different places you have studied and trained and um, you know, been in India and Boston and Scotland and uh, the Netherlands as well, I think. So very impressive. I'm sure things are a little limited with COVID, but do you have any trips coming up? No, a lot of trips canceled, though. I was supposed to come to Palo Alto next month. And uh, unfortunately, well, unfortunately, they decided not to make it virtual. They just postponed it to the fall. I'm looking forward to that. And then I think a few trips, UK and other trips have been uh, Japan. I don't know a few things coming up, but have no idea what's going to be and what's not going to be. Well, if you decide to come to Palo Alto in the fall, please let Molly and myself know because we'd love to see you in a socially distanced, masked way and just uh, see you in person. <laughs> of course. And Shupa, remind us, uh, what is a book that you feel like every physician should read? Do you have any specific recommendations? Well, I'm going to keep it rather boring. And as far as since our focus is clinical exam or bedside teaching, I'm going to say everyone who teaches at the bedside uh, should probably read Tally and O'Connor, Nicholas Tally and Simon O'Connor's clinical examination. One's an Irish physician, one, the other is an Australian physician, and this is simply the best physical exam book I've ever read. And they also throw in a lot of evidence and uh, you know uh, into it. So this is one, and the other I would say is. Um, this is sort of part professional, part personal. Sherlock Holmes is my role model in terms of, not in terms of his habits, but in terms of the clinical reasoning. And uh, so I like to look at myself as a medical detective. Wonderful. Well, we love uh, additional resources for learning tips on teaching. And, and I have heard that from others as well, that being an internist is almost like being a detective and, and people get inspiration from Sherlock Holmes. So thank you. Do you have um, some best advice that you have ever received or that you like to give? Huh. Okay. I have received a lot of advice. I hate giving advice. I like sharing insights or prompting reflection. So I stay away from advice as such. But what is the best advice you received as a learner? Yeah, as a learner, um, I was a learner at a time where the norm was harsh criticism, very little congenial advice. However, I looked at it as what I shouldn't do or what I should do. So in a way, there were some positive role models and there were a lot of negative role models. So I would say I learned from both. So I'd say as a teacher, one of the best pieces of advice I heard from a senior faculty was that I tend to be, you know, the classic hawk, not the dove. And she told me that I was looking at my learners through my own lens, my my knowledge, my skills, my attitude. And I often heard learners use the word intimidating, though they said a lot was learned from me. So in a way, I would I thought, okay, I was not walking a mile in their shoes. And this was something I think that really resonated and took me on a different path altogether. Um, so that was one of the best pieces of advice I've learned. 
I love that, Shuba, because it's the incredible perspective taking that I'm sure you're doing on a daily basis to put yourself in the shoes of where their learners are right now and where are they going? How can I think about their development in the future? I think one other question we like to ask our guests is about uh, failures and maybe your favorite failure and if you could share what you learned from that experience. Uh, yeah, this is one thing that readily comes to mind was my bad use or poor use of language when I myself was giving constructive feedback. It made the learner feel bad and I'm sure it probably did not encourage them to change their behavior. And why do I particularly bring that is I sat down and reflected after a particularly bad encounter from my standpoint and the learner, the resident standpoint. And I will say this is one of the biggest lessons I've learned because it started me on a completely different journey than where I was up to that point. And there I am today, a scientist in education, because I want to always know what makes education tick, what makes teachers a certain way, what makes learners want to motivate it. So it's a, it was an excellent lesson and failure, which I used as a growth opportunity. Definitely something we can all practice on doing a better job with and, and takes a lot of nuance and skill. So I, I think um, a wonderful one. Yura, do you have a pick of the week? I do, Molly. Thanks for asking. My pick of the week is Yoga with Adrian. I don't know if our listeners are familiar with her, but Adrian has become the queen of pandemic yoga, and she's really giving us all a chance to move. She has hundreds of videos available on her YouTube channel. They vary in length from five to 30 minutes. And honestly, they're the perfect buoy for a day of sitting at the computer or working. And I'm a big fan of movement as medicine. And yesterday I did one of Adrian's videos from her current 30-day yoga challenge. It's, it's called the Yoga Journey um, Move, and it was incredibly uplifting. So I'd encourage our listeners to try her videos out middle of the day, after work, whenever you have time. And as Adrian says, you know, do what feels good. And this is the opportunity to do that. So would encourage folks to give it a shot. Love it. That is definitely on my on my list to try to fit in more frequently. It's, it's hard with uh, trying to make space in the house, but... <laughs> Definitely one of my goals. Um, my pick of the week, and uh, Shuba, if you haven't heard of this one, as a foodie, you might enjoy, is called Gastro Obscura. Um, so it, you may have seen the Atlas Obscura um, book that kind of talks about amazing places around the world and just cool, obscure things to go visit. And so this one is about food history and kind of food throughout the world and um, just little short half-page bios about like what they ate in ancient Rome and like this fish paste and then like very bizarre um, fermented cheese with maggots from Italy and just all around the world, very unusual foods and uh, just kind of a fun and interesting way to explore when we can't actually travel. Thank you for both of those. I'll look those up. And uh, yes, I love history of cooking, history of food around the world. And I feel people in the West don't know enough about the fascinating food culture and history of the East. I don't know. I'm, I'm using East as a generic over there where I came from. Yeah. But we, we do get very limited and it's amazing how many ingredients like we just don't have access to and haven't spread to, to being available in the United States. And hopefully uh, that can change. 
it'll be another growth opportunity for us, but another eating growth opportunity when it's possible. (laughs) Hey, Ira, are you interested in healthcare and storytelling? Wow, Molly, so glad you asked. Heck yes. I recommend all our listeners take a listen to The Nocturnist, where healthcare workers share personal stories of joy, sorrow, and self-discovery. The show features live stories from frontline workers, as well as a conversation series where host Dr. Emily Silverman interviews authors, filmmakers, and others who have created works of art related to healthcare. I have to say I've listened to probably all of the Nocturnus episodes, and I've gotten lots of great book recommendations, having listened to the authors, and also just like a really fun reflection on what it means to be a doctor and what it means to practice medicine. So if you guys are interested, take a listen. You are eligible for free CME credit through a partnership with VCU Health Continuing Education. Check out The Nocturnist at thenocturnist.com, wherever you get your podcasts. So let's jump into the case to talk about the topic of bedside teaching. And we'll start with case one from Cashlock Memorial. Lisa is in her second year as faculty. Her attending student didn't feel as fulfilling to her because she wasn't teaching, especially at the bedside, as much as she wanted. She remembers being too focused on scanning the orders for newly admitted patients, attesting notes, and following up on outstanding labs and studies for the team's patients. She shares these concerns with you during a meeting with you as her faculty mentor. So to take a step back, when you're talking to a junior faculty and you hear about this kind of experience that they are just not teaching as much as they'd like to or we're not sure how to start teaching more, kind of what runs through your mind? So the first thing I want to do is, again, walking a mile in her shoes, uh, I will ask her what is preventing her from spending the time at the bedside that she thinks it deserves. Okay, so first of all, learn about her own barriers. To me, it occurs here, just from the case, as if she hasn't actually gotten over being a resident. So. That is one of the barriers that I see, but that may not be what she sees. So I want to meet her in the middle, find out what her own challenges are, and then start talking about possible solutions. Yeah, I think we have a word for it, resitending. I think she's very much a (laughs) resitending at this point. I have heard resiturn, but I hasn't heard resitending. I like it. Um, so other than kind of someone who's sort of still focusing on those moment to moment resident work details, are there other things that you see faculty frequently kind of getting in the way of teaching or what are those common barriers? Well, one of the things, at least, uh, well, there's always that work, that fine balance between work and teaching. And I think increasingly our residents and, and our attendings both. They have so many other competing commitments, unfortunately, which really remove them from the bedside. I don't have a solution for that because nobody may be queen of making increasing bedside time. But the point is, I think we as a system need to come together and brainstorm how can we pass on these tasks to someone else, if we have the someone else, and then... uh, you know, engage our residents and attendings in the stuff that we really like to do and need to be considered more worthwhile. So I think it needs to come from the top. That's one barrier. So just the whole culture itself in which our work sits. The other thing I would say is a lot of faculty, a lot of attendings 
they're not comfortable at the bedside because they are uncertain about their own skills like my history taking skills my communication skills my physical exam skills they're not good enough what do i have to teach and in lisa's case it may very well be i'm only a couple of years senior to the senior resident on the team and i don't want to you know showcase my deficiencies so there are many other challenges that come in one is the culture the situation and then other is individual the third is also learner driven and they have so much to do they probably feel like they just don't have the time to stand around and be taught so i would look at it from all three angles thank you shuban i wonder do you have a way or an overall approach for helping faculty integrate teaching in their clinical roles it sounds like from what i'm hearing the biggest first step up front is to identify those barriers and have them name kind of what they feel like are perceived roadblocks. But do you have other steps along your overall approach to helping faculty, especially junior faculty, such as Lisa, uh, integrate more clinical teaching? Uh, I Yes, some, some. And I will speak from my standpoint, how I establish my goals. And as a novice educator, as a novice clinical teacher, there was never enough time. And I was oozing over with knowledge and pearls that I had to share. And, you know, as one, <laughs> as time passes, you say, you just don't have the time. So have very pocket-sized goals, like this one teaching pearl on this patient, this one teaching pearl on this patient. That's good enough. And over the course of a two-hour, even work rounds, those pearls collect and benefit everybody, and yet people feel like they are continuing to move and getting the work done. That's one thing. The second thing is, that's that what do you teach from the clinical medicine standpoint. Then the second thing is formulating a goal from the teaching standpoint. Today, I want to engage all my learners. Today, I want to ask questions that promote clinical reasoning. Today, I want to observe. Today, I want to have my senior resident teach, and I want to take the position of a learner. So that one goal for each day. Not today, I want to be a perfect teacher. Tomorrow, I want to be Sir William Osler, because that doesn't get people anywhere. I love that. And we've heard that from a few of our other guests as well, that you know it, it can just be overwhelming to the learners if you are trying to give this knowledge dump. And so picking one pearl is a, is a great suggestion. And then I also love your, you know, your recommendation that the attendings, the the teachers have their own goals and work towards small improvements. And those sound like um, very doable, smart goals. How do you define bedside teaching in general and, and why is it important? So if you had asked me this 10 years ago, my definition probably would have been very different. But today my definition is bedside teaching is one where patient is present. That's a no-brainer. But where the patient is engaged in the teaching, as a teacher, as a partner, I think that's the best kind of bedside teaching that we can, or, or the best way bedside teaching can be defined. That's super helpful, Shuba, because I think it centers, it helps us to center the patient in everything that we do, but especially from our educational mission. If we were to take a step back and kind of broadly define or conceptualize effective versus ineffective bedside teaching, do you have a way to help us do that? So effective or teaching always means 
that people learned. Everybody learned something. The learners, well, the technical learners, the teachers, and the patients. So you have to have a triad, right? I mean, one, one part of the triad, there may be many learners. There may even be more than one teacher, and that's perfectly fine, and a patient or and patient and family. So if you put that in a triad, but all three angles of the triad have learned something, have benefited in clinical care, and that would be effective. How that happens can vary from patient to patient to patient or encounter to encounter. So I'm not a fan of recipes, but how it happens is individualizable. But the fact that learning has to happen and patient care has to move forward a step, that is effective bedside teaching. For those of us who learn best with mnemonics or acronyms or a recipe to improve our skills, UC Riverside has a great module on improving bedside teaching using a clever mnemonic, Bedside. B is for briefing, E is for expectations, D for demonstration, S for specific feedback, I is for inclusion of micro skills, and D for debrief, and E for education. Yes, I really like the simple framework to help us stay on track. The first letter, B, briefing, involves setting up the case ahead of time, checking in with the learner and introducing all the team members and the patient. And then E, expectation, is figuring out the learner's specific goal. What are we trying to focus on? Are we looking at history taking, communication, physical exam? And the next steps, D for demonstration, this really depends on what you're trying to teach. Are you watching the learner to be able to have a feedback conversation about a specific topic? Are you modeling clinical skills? The S is for specific feedback. Now this, we say, Go back and take a listen to our first episode from Curbsiders Teach if you need more tips on having feedback conversations. And then the I in bedside is inclusion of microskills using NAIR's five-step microskills model. I actually did not know this was a specific model, but I had heard of these steps before. And so they are, number one, get a commitment from the learner. Two, probe for supporting evidence. Three, teach general rules. Four, reinforce what was done right. And five, correct mistakes. So try to see if you can just highlight one of those for the learner and help them take their thinking to the next level. I love it. Now, wrapping it up, the D in bedside is for debriefing, both with the learner and the patient. What questions are there from both sides? What reflections does each party have? And the final E, that's for education. Where can the learner access more information on the topic at hand? And you highlighted the importance of having the patient participate in in the learning experience. How do you actually make that happen in process? So uh, it doesn't take very long. Okay, there are two kinds of bedside rounds. One is the kind that, you know, is dedicated towards teaching, okay, and patient care is not incorporated into that equation. And in that case, I think the teacher, whoever the teacher may be, just spend a minute or so before with the patient, tell them the purpose of the rounds, and then tell them that, you know, these are young doctors, the young student doctors who are learning, and we are teaching them to be outstanding doctors in the future. And as part of that, we'll ask a lot of questions and we'll use some language, but we'll come back and explain what we're doing. And in fact, I find frequently, especially I know for bedside rounds, patients selected and the patients who are likely to contribute the most or engage the most are typically selected, right? 
and they get into the spirit of the moment and they actually start asking questions. They, I can see their eyes going from person to person with great enthusiasm and they add their comments whenever we allow them to. So that's one. The other kind is the work, the business sort of rounds. Again, one in 30 seconds of telling the patient, we are your team. This is what's happening. We actually think a lot about you, that the patients love that. And if you have anything to add, please do. So, you know, bringing them into the conversation, making eye contact. Too frequently, I think at the bedside, especially during work runs, what's happening is the computer is becomes the focus. And you're rushing through without letting the patient even say anything or even asking, how are you today? And I almost feel like that's the first thing that needs to happen. How are you feeling today? And then turn and say, we are going to discuss a few things. So, you know, minor, the, this mismanners kind of etiquette, it, we forget when we approach the patient's bedside. Nothing complicated. And when you're preparing for this kind of um, encounter, do you, like the morning of, ahead of time, kind of have your pearl in mind? Or is that something that you're creating on the fly as you're discussing with the patient? That's a very good question. So I don't necessarily prepare unless this is a dedicated teaching round. And then I do formulate certain things in my mind, but always prepared to change things on the fly because you have to, almost every time you have to. So I don't get too hot and bothered about that. But essentially, I don't mind. And here's the thing. I mean, I, I don't know if it comes with experience of having made mistakes. Experience, anyway, I will def define experience not in a snooty way as an experienced person is one who's made many mistakes and learned from them. That's it. That's what experience is. Um, so with experience, you know that you can never know everything. You can't even know half of the things that there is to know. Um, and there's going to be ambiguity, uncertainty. If you're willing to embrace your lack of knowledge, your lack of skills, and the fact that there's always going to be uncertainty, it just makes you relax in the moment. It's, it's just like you said, yoga by Adrian. That's exactly what you're practicing at the bedside. And what you know is what you know. You know, together, you have a student, intern, resident, attending. And I look upon it as a shared brain and shared knowledge. But together, we know a lot. But there's always things we don't know. As long as we embrace that at the bedside and tell the patient about the ambiguity and tell them, but we are working on this. I think it just makes everybody relaxed and start focusing on, oh, my God, she asked a question. I don't know the answer. Uh, so that that's what I would say. And I'm perhaps this comes with, I wouldn't say getting old. I'd just say getting mature and having made many mistakes. Shuba, I love that. I feel like maybe we should rename this Bedside Teaching by Adrian or Bedside Teaching by Shuba and then kind of do what feels good. It can be a tagline for you as well. I wonder, how did you decide in the moment to kind of ask questions of your learners at during bedside rounds or during that bedside teaching? Is that part of something that you typically do? I know you didn't want to kind of suggest a recipe necessarily, but is there something that you know, your kind of a checklist maybe that you're running through or kind of how does that, how did that come up for you? 
Uh, no checklists. As I said, I'm not a, a fan of checklists, but it's sort of go with the moment uh, because every patient has a different story, a different illness, and oh, just focus on how the learners or how we have come to a certain differential diagnosis, how, why, a, a whole series of whys, but not in a threatening manner. Oh, tell me how uh, how you arrived at your differential diagnosis, what goes for and what goes against. And then um, ha have everybody contribute to the conversation. And so focus on, you know, not the what questions as much as the why questions and how questions. And then, and then make it very clear that everyone is an equal contributor to the conversation. But I... I should say, just digressing a bit, this sort of safe learning climate needs to be established ahead of time. Okay, so if you have uh, participated in or heard about Kelly Skeff and George Stratos, you know, the Stanford Faculty Development Program, their model for clinical teaching, the first, first key category is establishing a positive learning environment. I think once that's done, then many things follow. So that's, hope that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. And thank you for bringing that up. We have actually another episode that's really basically just about that, about kind of setting up the team. So um, I would encourage listeners, if they haven't already, to go back to episode two, I think. Shuba has a great paper called 12 Tips to Improve Bedside Teaching, which we'll link to in the show notes. I wanted to highlight tips seven and eight, which really focus on skills to improve in the moment teaching at the bedside. A few of those include avoid asking trainees impossible questions and read my mind type of questions. You can make gentle corrections for the learner if they need to be uh, pushed in the right direction. Try to focus on the demonstration of clinical skills that can only be done at the bedside. The goal of witnessing clinical interactions and the learner's bedside skills is to give honest and valuable feedback so that they can grow as physicians. And then physician teachers should be vigilant about grabbing such teachable moments and use them to applaud good work and correct or rectify deficiencies in knowledge, skills, or attitudes. Now, after the teacher has been vigilant, we will move on to Shuba's tip eight. Now, this reflects back to the demonstration part of that bedside mnemonic that UC Riverside taught us. And we're going to remind ourselves what in the world we're doing during the bedside teaching. Now with demonstration, tip eight, before leaving the bedside, teachers are encouraged to summarize what was taught and what was learned during that encounter. Patients also need a summary of that discussion, explaining what applies and what does not apply to their illness and management and overall course. Patient education and counseling can be done at this stage, albeit concisely, Shuba says. Do you think that there are, or can you think of any initiatives that are aimed at improving teaching um, and clinical care for educators? You mentioned kind of the, the Stanford program. Are, are there other things that educators might be able to access or kind of resources that may be helpful? Yeah, I think associations like uh, many associations, and I will, uh, because the three of us are internists, I will say, uh, SGIM, for example, they have their TEACH program, they have many resources. Uh, but similarly, I will say, having had the opportunity to speak at the AAN, that's the Association of Neurologists, they have their teaching resources, oncologists, palliative care, communication skills people, uh, each organization, 
they have some sort of uh, teaching workshops these days and have uh, resources. At a local level, I think one of the, uh, in fact, they did it at the Stanford program when I attended, which is a lot of peer coaching. So you practice, you're watched by somebody, and then they coach you because there's no way that we know how we are coming across. Are we effective? And so I really am a big fan of the coaching program, being a coach for other teachers. And, you know, think fair share. I think that's the best thing you can do. There's really nothing like peer observation teaching to really, in coaching, to really get you fired up and and also improve your skills because you're hearing someone appear who you respect and trust giving you feedback on that. Shuba, specifically because I know that you've done some of the work on this, how do EPAs factor into kind of improving our teaching? Maybe what are the benefits directly for the teachers or indirect benefits for the learners? How do they fit in here? Let me go back to the Stanford. Okay, that that was, I think, the original model where they actually talked about categories, like let's say promoting a positive learning climate or evaluation, but then broke it down into observable behaviors. We didn't call it EPAs at that time, but they were the original architects of teaching behaviors in its lowest common denominator, which makes it easy. So you have, okay, these are the behaviors that mean that you're establishing a positive learning environment. And you can actually use that, not necessarily as a checklist, but essentially are they doing it? It it helps with the coaching because what is coaching after all? Like someone establishes a goal or two and then does the behavior or, or practices the behavior with somebody watching. And so the goal versus what's done, that's the gap. And the coach is able to help them reflect on the gap and say, okay, how can we narrow this gap? So that's what coaching is in a very simplified way all about. So I will say rather than, you know, EPAs are coming up these days and that's, but then go right back to the Stanford. I think those uh, categories and behaviors are still valid today. I think I might just ask Shuba to maybe be specific if, you know, let's say I was Lisa coming to talk to you. Are there specific things um, that you could potentially tell her or role model so that she can improve her bedside teaching, uh, especially if she's identified that really that model that you mentioned, the res attending model is the biggest barrier for her. Are there ways that you role model or that you share kind of uh, your experience so that Lisa can learn? That is a good question. And again, I don't want to look at Lisa through the black box of my own behaviors. But, you know, one of the things maybe we could do this think fair share sort of activity by looking at behaviors. Perhaps Lisa might say, what is it that you really want to do? Oh, I want to, you know, make sure that we are the teacher, uh, you know, I'm able to um, get at the learner goals. And then pick on a goal for the teaching. And then as a teacher, I want, so establishing goals and being very focused, one educational goal, one learning goal. Okay. So that's the first thing. And then we probably will think of, all right, these are your goals. How will you operationalize these goals? So that is important. Then I would say, okay, let's go and practice these uh, certain behaviors. Let's go and practice it at the bedside. 
And then, you know, the debriefing is very important Do for, for one thing. How do you make eye contact with the patient? How do you engage the patient? How do you inject humor into the situation appropriately? Everybody likes a smile. Of course, not when a patient is angry or in pain, but, you know, a something. So I try to bring something and try to make a connection. We're all human beings. There's always one area to connect. So I try that. Okay. I'm not saying it's going to work all the time, but sometimes it does break the ice. And then I say, this is what's going to happen. And occasionally I, I ask the patient, you know, when the patients are very, very engaged in the whole teaching encounter, I actually ask them, so how did he do? How did I do? So straight, I just ask openly for their feedback. And then we have a laugh. We go out and debrief those so-called soft skills, which are the hardest of all in medicine, okay, or in the clinical world and not just medicine, and, and debrief on those. We always, we are very good at debriefing on science and technology and, you know, the clinical care, not so good at the other essential skills. So that those are some of the pearls, but talk about it. And then also as a role model, I'll come out and tell Lisa, okay, this is what I wanted to do. I had to turn 180 degrees because of this. And then here is what I think ended up being effective. And this is what didn't do so well. So what am I going to do the next time? So I think that self-reflection would be the one thing I role model more than anything else. I also love that in that self-reflection, Shuba, you bring the patient in again. You know, you centered them from the very beginning, and then we asked the patient, how did they do or how did I do? And then you kind of incorporate that into your self-reflection. So I really, it's kind of your role modeling, meta role modeling, that the patient is at the center of all of this. Bedside teaching is a skill as old as time, and just like the 2009 BMJ article by Ray and Ganguly, we wanted to highlight a few timeless strategies to integrate into your practice from their article. The authors note that the first key step is preparation, just like Shuba mentioned in our episode. Planning bedside rounds or clinical teaching in the office is imperative. The time period for teaching should be protected, both for the learners and the teacher. And the teacher needs to familiarize themselves with the clinical curriculum and find out where the learners are in terms of their developmental stage of their clinical skills acquisition. Next, Ray and Ganguly mention that the team ground rules must be established. The learners need to be briefed about the goals for what they are going to accomplish in the room. And then when you're actually in the room with the patient, so important to introduce all members of the group, the patient's permission must clearly be sought out at the beginning of the teaching session. Especially important for the teacher to clearly focus on observing the trainee's interactions with the patient, and that allows the teachers to evaluate trainee's specific skills, attitudes, and knowledge at the bedside. Lastly, Ray and Ganguly highlight that every learner should be given the opportunity to participate in the clinical encounter, and at the end of the teaching session, there should be a feedback conversation to review what was taught, just like in the UC Riverside model and how we think about becoming self-regulated learners ourselves. The teacher should reflect on the teaching encounter in order to improve and better prepare for the next encounter. Molly, maybe we go on to case two? I think that sounds great. Awesome. So Shuba, Ryan is a fourth year medical student and uh, he's working with you in clinic and he wants to specifically level up his cardiac exam. And he told you that this was his goal for today's session with you. 
and you smile just like you just did because the cardiac exam is something that you've also been working on improving um, because it sounds like, you know, sometimes our physical exam skills might atrophy and you're nervous about this experience, but you're also excited to share meaningful pearls with Ryan. And I wonder kind of pushing back or leaning back on what you just said about observation and uh, giving feedback in terms of peer observation. If you were observing a faculty member working with Ryan, or maybe you were in the precepting room with this person, would you share any tips with them on how to improve their bedside teaching specifically around the clinical, uh, the physical exam or the cardiac exam? Um, yes, certainly. And in this situation, because it is orchestrated ahead of time, the student has already told the preceptor what his goal was. It makes it just a little simpler to set up this teaching encounter. So perhaps Ryan didn't tell them, uh, well, uh, Ryan, uh, one of the things you can do at the, in the moment is say, okay, what are my strengths? as far as the cardiac exam goes. Those are the things I can focus on, at the same time acknowledging that there are gaps in my own cardiac physical exam skills, which I will work on later. Because if Ryan had just told the preceptor five minutes ahead of time, you don't have time to go and brush up. Or you could. You know, if you had nothing else to do, if Ryan was in the room by himself, and you had five minutes, you could brush up a couple of things. But if you didn't even have the time, um, you could do it afterwards. But then focus on your strengths. And rather than, you know, getting disappointed or uh, intimidated by what you don't know. So that would be one thing. So some preparation ahead of time. So tell, uh, you know, talk to Ryan and then pick on a few things that you would like to demonstrate and for that particular encounter. You can't demonstrate all of the cardiac exam, but some pearls, because you do, even if your cardiac exams have atrophied, which they do over time. You said sometimes you're being kind, always is more like it, uh, but focus on your strengths and tell Ryan these are the things we'll focus on. Then the, that is the preparation. And then during just decide ahead of time, are you going to let Ryan do the exam and then step in with some pointers? Or are you going to demonstrate and then have Ryan follow, you know, the classic physical exam, uh, you know, I will model and then I'll talk through it and then Ryan do it and then you give feedback. That's the four steps for skills teaching, um, patents model. You can do that. Or what are we going to do? Or you, you kind of do a little bit of this and a little bit of that. So I think that can be decided ahead of time and then let it happen and tell the patient, of course, what you're going to do. And then the small things you can always say is, okay, if you open up the Johnny, remember to close the Johnny, tell the patient what you're doing, like step by step by step, talk them through what you're going to do. I am listening here. I've done it so often that it's almost second nature. I kind of give them a running commentary. I'm going to examine here. If you don't mind, I'm going to examine lower down. And this is what I hear. I actually tell the patient what, what I hear. And sometimes I offer my stethoscope. The COVID time is very different. I offer my stethoscope to them and say, hey, do you want to listen to your heart sounds? Uh, so it's sort of fun. Oh, is that what it sounds like? Um, and then you come out afterwards 
and essentially uh, give the opportunity for Ryan to ask questions, you clarify, answer, and then say, there are a few things that I need to read up. And then if Ryan comes back to work with you tomorrow, you can both discuss that. So I think you're talking about the 12 tips, for example. And so there are some things to be done before, some things to be done during, some things to be done after. But as long as you keep it focused and don't ramble on and ramble on, I think it can be tight and effective. Relevant to our last case, as we think about the cardiac exam, we have Dr. Anthony Mazella and Dr. Lisa J. Rose Jones's article on effective teaching at the bedside to lend us a hand. We wanted to highlight two tips that Dr. Mazella and Rose Jones note that are key to successful bedside teaching. The first is make the results tangible to learners using physiologic explanations and likelihood ratios if applicable. Key to adult learning theory is this idea that if we can tie it back to something that learners are already familiar with, they're more likely to uh, obtain the knowledge. So if we can explain the physiology as to why, they'll be more likely to assimilate it. The second tip Dr. Mazella and Rose Jones mentioned is to reinforce the teaching topic with future patients or serial measurements day-to-day with the same patient. So the next time a previously demonstrated bedside technique becomes relevant, either with the same patient or a different one, Asking the learner for supporting evidence to suggest their application of what they already learned is key. This really reinforces techniques that you already demonstrated at the bedside, and you allow, uh, it gives you a chance to see if there's any mistakes that happen that need to be corrected. So that reinforcement is really powerful. I'm just curious, when you're precepting in clinic um, and, and say with a resident, um, if, if you work with, I'm not sure if you work with residents or more students, but say with a resident and they're seeing five or six patients, how many of those do you try to go in and work on a physical exam? Like what, what do you think would be an ideal for a preceptor to aim for? So you probably know more than two because they've got to see the patient, come and get precepted, and then go back and get some work done. Uh, Unfortunately, there's lots to be done before you send the patient out of the room. But you can ask your resident, I work mostly with residents, you can ask the resident uh, to pick up on certain patients with physical exam findings that they are unable to explain or they want confirmed. So it can be rather focused. Or you can decide ahead of time, look at look at the list and say, oh, shall we do a an exam on this particular patient? So I would probably say no more than two, but somehow cover the key points of the physical exam for a given patient. Or sometimes, you know, depending on the history. So they're coming in with shortness of breath. Then you go and say, okay, let's see if there's volume overload. Let, this is what I do when I check for volume. And this is what I'm doing. And then this is what I listen, uh, uh, you know, on a cardiac exam. And this is how I listen. And at the same time, I always say, you know, in medical school, you're taught like systematic exam, which takes about 45 minutes to complete. That is great to learn the basics and to get uh, practice. But then in this clinical scenario we're in, you need to actually be very efficient. And here are some things that are more uh, high yield than others. And then talk them through what you're doing. And like I do like a five-minute neuro exam and say, this is what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. Because I know of, a, you know, when patients come with back pain and then I make them walk. It takes two minutes. I say walk as tiny rooms. 
walk five steps, turn around, walk on your heels five steps, walk on your toes five steps, and then walk one foot in front of the other. And I said, I'm pretty much done with the lower uh, limb neuro exam, motor exam, and then just quick reflexes, and then you're done. So I give them the five-minute neuro exam. That's relevant. Did that answer your question? It did, yeah. And I appreciate that you focus on the why as well, because um, I certainly see some learners, um, you know, they they know these names of musculoskeletal tests and they say, oh, I did the Nears and the Hawkins, and but I don't know what it means, you know. So yeah. um, it's definitely important to tie it back to how that changes your differential and, and where that actually leads you. And I sit down with the resident and say, okay, fine. I, you know, I'm, the shoulder exam is not on top of my skill list. Let's just do a quick review so that you're kind of modeling that. Let's, let's read up a little bit very quickly and then go back and practice these maneuvers. And let's pick two or three. Uh, so we do that as well. And Shuba, when you're saying like, let's review the shoulder exam, is it pulling up a YouTube video of your favorite uh, teacher teaching the shoulder exam? Or do you have any kind of go-tos? Because that back pain exam sounds incredible. I'm sure that uh, when that pearl gets dropped, it's like silence in the room because that's a great way to do that exam. But do you have other people that you've learned from or that you kind of turn to for um, teaching videos or quick review uh, during clinic? Not specifically, but then uh, you, you raised YouTube. And YouTube, if there's a two-minute video, absolutely. And, for example, you just type in McMurray's sign. Okay. I mean, it's a bugbear for all of us, I know. Uh, and then just watch it and then say, okay, I just watched the video. Just tell the resident. I just watched it. Let's practice it. <laughs> okay. Or I even say, while you're doing the taking the history and seeing the patient, I'm going to quickly brush up on this and then we'll go back and do it together. So it, you're not pretending to the resident that, you know, you're the expert and then you know it all and you're going in. But actually, and then that sort of inspires the residents as well to go and read up afterwards. Uh, and if there are other preceptors who might be particularly skilled, I think, uh, for example, I have a rheumatologist as a fellow preceptor on that afternoon. And the resident and I just sit and ask uh, quick questions and say, hey, let's, and then somebody else may ask me questions about the cardiac exam or the neuro exam. So just learn from each other and kind of model that we're all learners and we're all in this together. I love that technique. Um, do you have any tips for working with learners that just aren't particularly excited about the physical exam? You know, we've moved on to POCUS and every, you know, we can order any scan available? Um, how, how do you encourage learners to be excited about the physical exam? Tell them why it's high yield. Say so you can do five x-rays a day or five CT or scan them from head to toe and then be led off in different or mistaken direction because you found all these little incidental uh, lesions that take you off and away on a tangent. So I think it's important to tell them why. And uh, frequently I tell them, okay, this test is not needed because this is why. Okay, the volume exam is important. And as part of the volume exam, I tell them. And then I say, a murmur is important for this reason, especially in the outpatient setting. You know this, oh, a cardiac murmur, I'm going to order an echo. Then the question is, why do you want to order the echo? 
Okay. So tell them why it's important. I think that they, you, we owe them that. Why we think it's important and why we can't be running around ordering scans every day uh, just to follow or confirm a diagnosis. And also tell them when the scans have led you in the wrong direction. People have written about the reflective or hypothesis-driven clinical exam, and I think uh, I, I like quoting that. I say, so have a diagnostic hypothesis uh, based on the history, then target your physical exam towards the diagnostic hypothesis unless you discover something totally different, and then see how you can, how these findings confirm or not confirm your diagnostic hypothesis? And then what are your next steps? So always focusing on the diagnostic hypothesis and clinical reasoning, I think is a good place to start rather than just saying, okay, let's start inspecting this patient. Let's start palpating this patient, percussing and auscultating without any link to why. So I think clinical reasoning uh, uh, should be the target of physical exam. And kind of to flip that a little bit, if if a learner is working with a preceptor or an attending that isn't as enthusiastic about teaching uh, at the bedside or, or teaching physical exam, do you have any tips for the learner of how to get the attending more engaged or to get that, that teaching that they need? Well, it, this is, uh, I'm trying to think, will the resident be coming to me and asking my suggestion? If that's the case, I tell the residents, because half the time we don't even know this happens. But if the resident were to come to me and say, how can I motivate this attending? If the team says we want to learn more physical exam or spend more time at the bedside, I can almost, I can't imagine an attending being forced to do that, right? There's no way the attendings can't step back and say, well, I'm not so good at the bedside exam, so forget it. We can just sit in the conference room. That would be really bad. So I would say have the learners ask, establish their goals and say, this is really an area that we consider important. And if we can spend even 10 minutes at the bedside and on physical exam teaching, and we'll all contribute to it, that would be great. And I think if the the resident team, the resident leader insists on it, it'll happen. I love that. It's like manifesting. It's asking the learner also to manage up, but also manifest what they would want. You know, this is something that I'm excited about. And like you said, I think there's rarely some someone who's like, nope, not happening today. You know, I think most people would say, wow, I can think of something to teach. You know, let's look at this person's nails or something and, and see what we can find. That's right. Shuba, thank you so much for this incredible conversation. Wondering with all the things that we have discussed and you have dropped pearls about, are there particular take-home points for our listeners that you really would like to highlight? Sure. I think as a bedside teacher, enthusiasm is important, curiosity, compassion for the learners, and humility in our own skills as teachers. And the final thing I would say is, uh, I think there's a lot of papers these days about patient as educator and patient as partner in their own clinical care. I think that would be pretty important, engage the patients in the teaching. Those are wonderful. Thank you. And this has been such a a valuable conversation and we've been so glad to talk with you, Shiva, and we really appreciate your time. It was lovely to meet both of you uh, online. 
and hopefully someday we can meet in person. And thank you for allowing me to share my insights. Your my take home point in this uh, one is really to do a better job, including our patients in the teaching process. And I, I love the idea of just really having them be an active partner in the triad of teaching and just to engage in their enthusiasm around teaching. Uh, my other take home, which we've talked about in other episodes too, but I'm still working on is to set a smart goal for myself throughout the teaching process. Um, so to say today, I'm going to ask good questions that encourage clinical reasoning. Or today I am going to see two patients with a resident and cover a physical exam skill. Well, Molly, if you want, I can definitely be your accountability partner for that. I, I was similarly learned a lot today, love the focus of the patient and asking the patient, how did we do? How was our teaching? But I also uh, wanted to focus on Shuba's point about modeling, a kind of that I also need to do a quick review of a physical exam maneuver or specifically say why I'm doing a particular exam, uh, physical exam maneuver, and also why I'm not ordering something, but because I did a particular physical exam and why that's important in this person's um, diagnostic and clinical reasoning. So I'm really planning to hopefully use my one goal to kind of really explain to the resident the next time I'm precepting why I'm doing something in particular. Wonderful. This has been another episode of our Curbsiders mini-series, The Curbsiders Teach. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com slash teach. We're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecurbsidersteach at gmail.com. A special thanks to Dr. Matt Watto and Dr. Paul Williams for their support in this project and to Dr. Stuart Brigham for composing our theme music and to Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio. A reminder that this and most episodes are available for free CME credit for all healthcare professionals at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. All you have to do is create an account. Until next time, I've been Dr. Molly Hoiblein. And I'm Dr. Ira Krasnovskaya. Thank you for joining us today and letting us bring you a little nugget of medical edutainment.